Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest hardly needs an introduction. With 13 novels, 4 non-fiction books, story collection and many, many articles, essays and even a teleplay under her belt, Jane Smiley is an important literary figure to say the least. Jane, welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, before we begin um, chatting, can you tell me a little bit about the genesis of the book? Where did the idea for Private Life originate? Well, my grandfather was one of the youngest of ten children. There were four girls. Four girls came first and then six boys. And um, one of his sisters, who was quite a bit older, I think she was maybe um, you know, 15 or 16 years older, um, she had married what the family considered to be just a sort of eccentric guy, you know, kind of someone to laugh at a little. Um, but he was in his own day quite an um, a aggressive cosmologist, a physicist and astronomer who, who wrote the um, science page for the San Francisco Examiner, which was a Hearst paper. And in the larger world, he was really considered quite a crackpot. And um, so I thought my, my great aunt was, I, I never met him or her because they, she died when I was only about two or three. But um, she was, everybody in the family really loved her. So I thought it was really interesting that um, a woman, just a normal sort of entertaining um, regular woman would be married for so long to such a strange Person and so it made me contemplate marriage and um, especially marriages in the old style before there were di- before there was divorce before there were alternatives and so um, I started thinking about it reading up on things that might work go into it and the only thing we really knew about her was that she liked um, Oriental art and that when she moved to San Francisco or the San Francisco area from Missouri, she sort of blossomed in some ways. And then also she drove a very old Franklin. That's what my grandmother, I mean my mother and her sisters remembered, that she drove this very old Franklin. There was quite a bit more known about him. He's a little bit of a presence on the Internet. And so um, I just had to sort of put together this marriage and these lives um, not entirely from whole cloth, but sort of from bits and pieces. Mm. And, and I, I really like the way, you know, you've got different kinds of knowledge going on in in the book. There's Margaret's knowledge. It's a, she's almost a kind of scientist, too. She observes patterns and seems <laughs> to understand things at a much, much deeper level than the kind of superficial, fact-based um, knowledge that Andrew has. Well, Margaret has had a, a childhood somewhat typical of her generation of women in central Missouri. There's been a lot of violence, some um, some unfortunate deaths. Her father commits suicide uh, when she's, you know, uh, not very old in the book. She's about eight, I believe. And um, and then her brothers are killed, one in a disease, one by a disease, and one in an accident. And to some extent, that was the way life was in Missouri in the 1870s and 80s after the Civil War. And so she's um, 
she her life is about making the best of things, um, even if they're horrifying. And when she gets married, she tries to make the best of that too. And she she doesn't quite know. It, it, hers is a semi-arranged marriage. Um, there's no property involved, but the two mothers, Andrew's mother and Margaret's mother, collude in getting these two together. And so Margaret knows nothing of her husband, basically, except what he looks like um, and what his demeanor is like when she first is married to him. And um, so she has a kind of innocence but she's been always been a reader. She's always been an observer. She's always been um, paid attention to things around her. And so her job, I think, in the novel is to put two and two together, or even one and one together, and see and try to come up with an accurate, uh, an accurate sum. Mm. I. I- it strikes me that one of the themes that seems to be running through the book in, in lots of different subtle ways, um, and some obvious ways too, is that tenuous relationship between fact and fiction. Um, so the facts, for example, that Andrew collects against the stories that mm-hmm. Margaret sees, almost as if it were fact versus truth. You know, what happens on the surface in the private life beneath? Well, M- Margaret lives in a place, it's a, the place where they live uh, is called Mare Island, and it is the naval shipyard. Um, for the West Coast, and so she lives in a place where there's a great deal of sort of cosmopolitan life. People around her have been many places and seen many things, and she also reads newspapers, and um, there's a lot of gossip and stories going on, and so her whole life, since she doesn't have children, um, her whole life in some ways is about trying to figure out what's really going on, especially since her husband is totally convinced that he knows the nature of the universe, and she she gradually comes to understand that maybe he doesn't know the nature of the universe. And so she's always sifting through evidence, trying to figure out what's going on, where the dangers lie, um, how to behave herself. Um, and, you know, in some ways you have to say that's, what, that's how we all live, um, we, some of us are close to the fire and some of us are a little farther away from the fire, but we, we always are aware of the fire burning um, uh, and and how to deal with it. So, mm. I, I mean, Andrew, of course, is colossally arrogant and at one point he <laughs> points that out to him um, or, or certainly thinks it very clearly. Um, but he's not completely antagonistic, um, unlike Len Scanlon, who I'll talk to you about shortly. But <laughs> I think you mentioned in an interview um, this notion of dark matter and, and you know, the, the search for the theory of everything, which is, you know, very hot in science at the moment. Yes. He kind of tilts at the truth, doesn't he? Yes, he, you know, if he were alive, if he were resurrected today, he would say, yes, he knew that dark matter existed. You know, and what and how he would sort of bolster his ideas was that the somehow the math didn't work, and he knew it was off. Um, but really, he's a Newtonian, and so in order to get at the scientific theories of today, you would have to be willing to pass through the intermediate um, theories, Einstein's theories, theories of quantum mechanics, etc. You can't just jump on dark matter and say, aha, I knew it was there all along. He, he's a 
certain type of genius, you know, who has a grasp on some aspects of reality. And and the ones that he has a grasp on, he elevates to the whole thing. And the ones that he doesn't have a grasp on, he dismisses. He's an egomaniac. What can I say? Um, But he's not unkind to her. He expects service from her, and and but that's not unusual for a man of his day. He's he's you know he's a little outside of the regular behavior of a man of his day, but you know, not terribly. And um, she she finds living with him an increasing increasingly perplexing and increasingly a torment. But she has um, alternatives. She has ways of escaping, at least for part of the day and she has an inner life and she tries to cultivate it mm. yes there's this amazing moment um and we'll talk about lynn scanlon now because he is he's really um truly unlikable <laughs> the snake in the gift picture <laughs> and uh but there's this moment when he's sitting at that table with uh, margaret and, and helen the woman who he's impregnated at the, the boarding house and her mother and I love how there's this ex- extensive and silent intelligence that passes among the room. <laughs> this whole world of kind of, um, you know, sort of intuitive communication and wisdom that really the men in the novel are totally cut off from. Well, I think that was um, a characteristic of that day. I mean, Margaret's resources are her sisters, her mother, her mother-in-law, um, the other women in her knitting group. And so they share a kind of uh, wisdom about how life works, and it isn't very happy wisdom in some ways. But they understand what how life works, and and Len is, you know, Andrew allows Len into their life because he's going to write the um, the wonderful biography of the great Captain C. I mean, Captain Early, but. Um, but Margaret is suspicious of him all along, and he's a kind of a sexual rogue. He's married. He's from back in Michigan or wherever he comes from. I can't quite think it's Michigan. And um, he's come to California and, and done a lot of roguish things and wants to escape from them, and Margaret understands that. But for Andrew, the idea that, his biography would be written and he would be vindicated at last trumps all other things. Yes. It, it's a kind of, um, the, the way he dismisses her wisdom as well, though, and, uh, you know, and, and actually looks to another man to try and vindicate him. Um, you know, there's this whole sort of uh, male versus female thing going on, isn't there, where, um, you know, her lack of, um, for example, her lack of uh, of support for his ideas is that he sees as a you know complete betrayal. And well, yet, he sees that her job, as far as he's concerned, is to serve, and that and that was the standard. Um, that was the standard in those days. The wife was to serve the man, and if the man was a nice, kind guy, your service wasn't all that bad. But if the man was a, a egomaniac. Um, especially a tormented egomaniac, then your service was quite uh, difficult. And um, she has no real recourse. There's a woman in her knitting group who finally does get a divorce, but the only way that she's allowed to get the divorce is that her husband has fathered a child with his mistress, and so that's that's grounds for divorce in California. 
Yes, mere torment isn't enough. <laughs> Pardon me? Mere torment isn't enough. <laughs> no, mere torment is not enough. Nor was mere beating. It, it had to be real physically uh, destructive beating in order to qualify as grounds for divorce. And that was in California. So um, it's pretty amazing to think of that now. That was only 100 years ago. And yet the, the sort of collusion behind the scenes that um, that Margaret uncovers is, is a, you know, quite a betrayal as well, isn't it? It comes as quite a shock to realize that, you know, there was nothing really romantic in this whole process. Well, she she is quite fond. She's not so fond of her mother. She's always felt her mother was a little over um, over-directive, you know. But her mother is a practical woman who understands what it means to be an old maid at 27 in central Missouri, and really what it means is poverty and reliance on charity. Um, she is quite fond of her mother-in-law, though, who's Andrew's mother, and um, who has always seemed to be quite fond of her. And one of the things she does, um, and their house is always a mess. Andrew is a mess. He's, he's the kind of, he's a hoarder, pretty much you'd have to say. And so she's always coming upon caches of papers and letters. And at one point she comes upon the cache, a cache of letters um, between himself and his mother. And um, she's a little upset to, to discover what she finds um, about how their marriage came about. I think that's a, I think that's a, that's a sad moment in, um, in her life. Mm. As is, I think, the, the shock of the, I guess, a similar sort of betrayal when he sends that letter off and actually yeah, points the finger at, you know, at her friends. Well, but, you know, I think for Margaret, there's quite a difference between being hurt herself and being the agent of innocent people being hurt. So, yeah, she she's she's upset, but she accepts when things are hurtful to herself but she when she cannot accept um damage to others who she loves and considers to be innocent and so um she's quite upset in a different way by that mm. but that part i made up that part does not come from my relatives um so um i i just made that part up i i knew that my great aunt loved oriental art and and that she had some nice pieces, some nice prints. And so I just sort of put that together with the political situation in the 1920s and 30s. And um, and I knew that she had to, that Margaret um, had to confront the internment of the Japanese in California. Yes, and it does, I guess it does also pick up, I guess, her delicate sensibilities, her artistic sensibilities as she, you know, gets pleasure out of the beauty of the works of art that she she sees and the people who create them. Yes, but um, I have to say that her friend Pete, who is an adventurer in all types, in all ways, um, but is a good friend also, um, he points out that she never she never liked the warrior prince. She only liked the um, more pastoral prints. And so so she is sort of voluntarily, and I think we would all do the same thing, you know. She's sort of voluntarily chosen to see 
um, Japanese culture through the prints as um, as innocent, and things have ch- shown to be things have turned out to be different in the 1930s. And this doesn't mean that this should be held against her friends, but um, Pete, I think, is a more worldly guy, and he's more willing to to accept the horrors of existence. Yes, I think it's, it's, it's part of his worldview, as he says. He's he's quite an interesting character as well. He remains. I'm very mystery. fond of Pete, and Pete got into the novel because um, I sold the right to be a named character in this novel at the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation banquet. Uh, I think it was in, maybe it was in 06. And um, then I called the guy who won the who won it, whose name was Peter Krasenko. He paid $25,000 to be in the novel. And I said, what do you want to be? And he said, I want to be a Russian adventurer, though Ukrainian, not Russian, um, who's won and lost many fortunes. And I thought, oh, that'll that'll fit in nicely. And then I started writing about him, and he became a much more he he became a much larger character than I think twenty five thousand dollars. He should have gone back and given another fifty to the Thoroughbred <laughs> yes. Retirement Foundation. But it was quite fun to write about him and um, to think about what those adventures would have been, and to think about what kind of guy he would be. And um, so that part for me was a good deal of fun. And was the was the fellow who paid the with the original Pete um, happy with the with his characterization? I never heard. He never got back to me. I certainly hope so. I think he would be because this guy is charming, and he I I followed the prescription. You know, he won and lost several fortunes, so it was fun to do um, the research and try to figure out how a Russian in um, let's say who was born in let's say eighteen seventy. Um, would what sort of fortunes he might pursue, and then of course I had to deal with the Russian Revolution, and I had to deal with the trans the Russian railway to the Pacific. So it, it was really fun to read that history too. Mm. And he says you, you keep quite a lot of mystery around. <laughs> well, Margaret doesn't really believe Pete's story for a very long time. She thinks he might not be a Russian adventurer; he might just be an Irishman from Seattle who's putting them all on because he knows that Andrew has plenty of money. But but he wins her over. He's very charming. Yes, absolutely. And I think the, the interesting thing about him, too, is he's quite a foil to Andrew. And, and he's um, he's darker in many ways, but he's also, uh, he's also more respectful of Margaret's own inner self. You know, he's willing to accept her as she is. Well, yes, I mean, Andrew is a ladies' man. So a ladies' man is quite often a person who um, likes women and doesn't sneer at them. Um, but he, he also is in a place where she's going to find um, ul- the ultimate solace of a long-term relationship because he is a ladies' man. Ladies, I, I always, I've known, as have we all, many ladies' men in my day, and um they're quite interesting as a group and and appealing in a lot of ways. Yes, the coyote. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I noticed um, just a stylistic question. Um, both the prologue and the epilogue don't have quotation marks around mm-hmm. conversation. Um, just tell me, it, it works beautifully. You don't. Um, there's no 
need for them, but why did you choose to, to have a different form for the prologue and epilogue than the main book? Um, I wanted to put Margaret in sort of a dreamlike state, and um, I didn't want it to be so clear uh, what was actually being said and what she was thinking, because I, there are some times when you're quite um, a- upset or worked up where your mental state kind of exudes into the world and um, and you do feel like you're in a little bit of a fog. And so I wanted to reproduce that. Also, I had read um, E.L. Doctorow's book, March, in which he does not use quotations. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting, and maybe I'll try it. But I didn't want to try it for the whole book. I just wanted to try it for this one, these two sections that were set off from the rest of the book. And so um, I'm glad you think it works, because it was a bit of an experiment for me. I'm usually quite... Just, you know, quite determined to have it all clear what who's talking and what they're saying and the fact that they are talking rather than thinking. So I'm glad you liked it. Well, also it, it picks up on the title and, you know, this whole notion of, of private life being perhaps as legitimate as the public life. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think, you know, it took me a long time to figure out a title and then I realized I came upon the title Private Life sort of foraging around in my mind. I thought, you know, this really is about Margaret's. Andrew lives a terribly public life, um, and and Margaret is his private person. And yet Margaret's own private... So there's many layers here, and so Margaret's own private life isn't really accessible to her. And... So I looked up on the internet to see if there were any other books called Private Life, and that I nearly jumped out of my chair when it turned out that there weren't. There were just there was just Private Lives by Noel Coward, which is entirely different. And um, so I felt like that was a real gift to be able to have that title. Mm. And and I suppose history itself is full of private lives. I mean, all behind you know we only get the public life in in it historical sense but there's a whole underlayer of you know the, the private the private life the thoughts the emotions the impressions that are behind that well one of the things i did to sort of get to know about what margaret would be thinking about was to read on an old newspaper website a couple of newspapers that she might have been reading like the the oakland california paper and i noticed that um it was all a mix of politics and scandal so that um, on the same front page there would be some stuff about the government, some stuff about various military things that were happening, and some stuff about a woman whose husband had um, thrown her out of the house, you know. So, and and it's it's not so much that, it's not so true anymore that, um, all the all newspapers have all this stuff sort of thrown together in a mishmash. Um, but in her day, you were asked to think about um, personal adventures and political adventures, um, kind of, and and social adventures, all the time and all, and at the same time. So that was the thing that struck me when I was reading the newspapers about her. Mm. Now, um, you've got a couple of new works coming out shortly, don't you? Well, I have been working on um, a 
a girls' horse series, and one, uh, two of them are out. One is in 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 England and Australia. They're called um, Nobody's Horse and Secret Horse. In America, they're called the Georges and the Jewels and a Good Horse. Um, and the third one is coming out in a couple of weeks in the States, called True Blue. And I guess it'll be out in the spring in the UK. And um, these are books that take place in the 1960s, and they're about a young girl whose father buys and sells um, horses in California that he imports from uh, Oklahoma, where horses are cheaper. And um, her job is to ride the horses so that he can advertise them that a little girl can ride them. And she has lots of adventures. Um, she, it, it takes place around where I live and there, where the horse riding culture is extremely diverse. In the 60s, there were racing stables, hunting, hunter-jumper stables, um, western ranches with uh, cattle and um, and so she, because uh, because her father sells to all, and resorts too, so because her father sells to all of these places, she um, she sees like the whole world of horseback riding endeavor, and um, she loves the horses, and so there's some, some, some of the books she gets to have that special horse um, that every girl wants. Mm. And is is writing the books for young adults? Do you find is it a different process for you? Oh, it's wonderful. It's you know you it's the story unfolds. So and it has to unfold. The books are written in the first person, so the story has to unfold as her consciousness would experience it. And for me, um, that experience is. In, in many ways, more direct than an adult's experience would be, and more um, straightforward. So, um, for me, it's it's wonderful to kind of just follow Abby as she um, deals with her dilemmas, and she has several dilemmas in each book. And so, I've had a great a great time writing them. And and you've also got a nonfiction book coming out. As well, is it the man who invented the computer? Um, that that came out in the states last October, so that's already out. Mm. And um, that's a book that uh, I ca- I can't even begin to talk about at the end of an interview, except to say that it's about a man named John Vincent Atanasoff, who came up with the concepts um, of that we have in our computers today, and and the number of adventures in this book. Uh, that he had and the men who were also trying to invent computers had just blows your mind. It could not be a novel. Mm. It is the most amazing story. Um, and so, you know, all I did was scribble it down every <laughs> and try to keep up. So I take um, I take no real um, credit for this story. It was just a two too interesting a story. So I recommend it, not because it's mine, but because it's a story that needs to be known. And, and I suppose it's um, it's relaxing in a way, isn't it, to change genre after a, you know, a big, solid novel like Private Life? It's relaxing in a way. It's re- it's, let's put it this way. It's not relaxing, but it's refreshing. Yes. Well, you've said that it's always fresh. Um, does that mean it's always hard as well? 
No, it varies. The, the difficulty varies really from book to book, um, and uh, I can never predict ahead of time which book is going to be interesting and which book is going to be easy and which book is going to be difficult. Um, John Banville told me um, a while ago that, uh, and, and I was quite, uh, I was quite comforted by by hearing him say it, um, that he, he always feels just a little bit like he's failed every time he's written a book. <laughs> that well, he's never met, met his vision for himself. I don't feel that way. I'm more Dickensian. You know, Dickens always loved everything that he was working on, and then he walked away from it and went on to the next thing and loved that one and. And if he, at the end of his life, looked back and sorted them out, um, he didn't really, I don't know what he thought. So I think there are people who are sort of buyer's remorse types, and I think there are people who are sort of buyer's delight types. And I'm a buyer's delight type. Um, I enjoy it while I'm doing it. I I always think it's wonderful while I'm doing it. And and once it's gone and I'm on gone on to another thing, I think, well, that's interesting and but it's it's done. That that sounds like a, a much better perspective. <laughs> well, I don't waste time with regret with uh, futile regrets. Let's put it that way. Oh, that sounds great. Uh, look, um, that's all we have time for. But thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to join us today, Jane. Oh, my pleasure. And don't forget to join us next time for another great interview at the Compulsive Reader Talks. Bye for now. <laughs>